0: And welcome to Dinesh Guarda, Cities ABC and Open Business Council series. We are a fast-growing YouTube and podcast thought Leadership channel, focused on profiling the global, leading, inspiring people, CEOs, authors, technologists, academics, and people that are fir- framing and creating a new vision for our world, and especially looking at solutions, how we can actually get better results for the problems that we are facing. In this channel, we've been actually highlighting ideas, products, inventions, software, books and solutions to the multiple challenges and opportunities we face in our cities and our society. But we face specially and we actually profile special people. People that are inspiring, people that are doing fantastic projects and people that are trying to transform our world with all the areas and all the challenge from fourth industrial revolution to blockchain, AI, and all the frontier tech technologies that are disrupting and as well, accelerating our evolution as humanity. This podcast series are produced and distributed on citiesabc.com and openbusinesscouncil.org and syndicated on intelligentishq.com, fashionabc.org, edgefink.com and tradersdna.com, our associate partners and as well media platforms. Today, I have with us uh, quite a polymath and uh, uh, an expert in a lot of different areas. So I welcome Slim Hassan. Welcome to our series, Slim. Thank you. Good afternoon to you. So Slim is a particular um, out-of-the-box personality because he he bridges uh, a huge amount of different areas that are quite complex to put in the same box. So he's a person out of the box, let's put it that way. But uh, what I like is that he has a solid uh, academic background, a fantastic geographic as well, global background from Fiji to Pakistan, Nigeria, UK, and Japan, and Dubai right now. And as well, um, he's been working in the, having studied in Oxford and Cambridge Um, He started his career working in capital markets. And from the capital markets, he created his uh, company, um, Private in 2004, that has been growing to become one of the leading um, venture capital and as well a stage venture focus uh, organization with a huge footprint. So Slim has as well an experience in the areas of, uh, of course, venture capital, Japanese capital markets, um, investor relations, securities, asset management, investment advisor, and has been working with leading platforms in terms of technology and entrepreneurs. And one of the things that I like particularly is that on the top of this, he has a a very diverse wealth of experience, both uh, intellectual, business investment, entrepreneurial, but as well in the crossover between technology, art and specific, the areas of interfaith dialogue. And I think the picture on the back uh, highlights that as well, that we're going to talk about it. So I'm particularly excited because of this diversity is not common in most of the CEOs and most of the people leading business and investment relations. And as well, it's quite um, multicultural, but as well, uh, very open to diversity, but as well to understand the world we're living in because I think sometimes we we have we struggle to understand the world because we don't do our homework. So Slim, I'm particularly excited to have you on board and as well to, to talk about a lot of questions and a lot of dialogue as well. And in this case, there will be more mind dialogue, <laughs> not interfaith, but I think probably we'll have the faith as well in a lot of different layers. So um, I want to start with the first question is, so having these um, diverse, Geographic background and as well multicultural, because, like I mentioned, you have uh, Fiji, Pakistan, Nigeria, UK, Japan, and Middle East. So, this is actually a, a pot of uh, a melting pot of different cultures, different religions, different ways of dealing with business, with cultural, even interaction. Uh, for instance, Japanese culture, the UK culture, and of course, being educated in Cambridge and Oxford which are two leading global universities. So I would like to hear a bit about that background, that education, um, and as well, where you start all of this. Because I think it's quite unique, um, that background you have.
1: Thank you, Dennis. Well, first and foremost, thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. Um, My background, well, I usually summarize it uh, uh, using six flags, six flags. Because that really gives people an instant connection with the various geographies. <clears throat> so the first flag is that of Fiji Islands, and that's where I was born. My late grandfather went out to Fiji Islands in the 30s to set up a law firm there. My late father joined him when he finished. My brother and I were born there. So, you know, that's that's why Fiji Islands features in my life. I was born in Suva. And at the age of two, my late father moved to Nigeria. So the early part of you know, these flags, the second flag being Nigeria, uh, it's, it's part of your journey in life. You know, I didn't make a choice in that. Uh, you go where your parents take you. And uh, they originally come from Pakistan, which is the third flag. So my formative years were spent growing up in West African Nigeria. Um, Nigeria was an English colonial uh, country. They gained their independence in 1960 and became a federation in 63. And I spent a lot of time in the northern part of Nigeria, first in Kano, then Kaduna, then Sokoto in the northwestern part, 200 miles south of the Sahara Desert. So I effectively spent my childhood growing up in a desert. And this is important because it connects with something that happens in the Six flag later on. From there, I went to the UK for, uh, from Nigeria to read mathematics at Oxford as an undergraduate. I was blessed to have uh, a tutor in 1979 who taught me geometry by the name of uh, Sir Roger Penrose. About six weeks ago, he shared the Nobel Prize in um, Physics. Uh, and then from there, I went, uh, after I finished uh, Oxford, I went to Cambridge to do the part three of the maths tripos. And um, I was also blessed to have been taught by the late Stephen Hawkins at Cambridge. So my initial uh, uh, passion was mathematics and to become an academic. Uh, I did get a grant to study at Cambridge. My dad paid the overseas student fees, which were high compared to home student fees at Oxford. And I told him, I said, if I get you know, a grant to do a PhD, I will go on to, to, to do my uh, doctorate. But unfortunately, I did not get a fit. So till today, I I consider myself a failed academic at heart. Um, Anyways, that's when I parted ways with academia. And I moved to London. And my first and only corporate job was with the Japanese, hence the Japanese flag. So this was early Thatcher years, 82. And you all recall uh, when Thatcher started the privatization in the UK. And during that period, uh, you know, a lot of uh, companies were cutting down, you know, not hiring. The, what I call the culling exercise. So it took a long time. It took about eleven months for me to actually land this job. And I remember going through a string of uh, rejections, applying to places, and you know, um, but I guess you know you have to exercise a certain amount of grit and tenacity. And um, I guess when I look back today, these are. Some of the hallmarks of an entrepreneur. I mean, you just don't give up. If you're determined to do something, you just get on and do it, till such a time when the event happens, and then you look back and said, "Yes, it took 16 years to make an overnight success." That's the story of just about every single successful entrepreneur that I have heard of, read about, and those those traits are, are common, I think, uh, across all entrepreneurs. Yeah. So I did. I I was with uh, NICO Europe PLC for 11 years. I. They sent me to Tokyo to train in 84. And I was the youngest director appointed there at the age of 26. I then ran the equity and equity derivatives operations for them for seven of the 11 years that I was there. And um, at some point I hit a glass ceiling because I'm not Japanese, you know. So I went to the uh, chairman at the time and I asked him for early release. And that's when I really... Uh, planted the first seed of entrepreneurship for myself, I went out to set up my own business. In fact, my first startup was not Privity. It was Hassan Financial Corporation, which I founded in 1996. And this was an independent buying sell and advisory firm focusing on the Japanese markets. And uh, again, another journey starts. So, you know, it took me about another 10, 11 months just waiting in a small little office in Hay Hill, Barclays Square in London, and I had to take that office because that was a regulatory requirement. Before you get the license, you've got to show the regulators that you have an office space, but you could not start your business till you get the license. So I remember paying rent for 11 months till one good fine day. Uh, we got a letter from the SFA at the time saying they've granted us a license, and the rest was history. So that's really when my first entrepreneurial journey starts. So I'll take a little pause there in case you have any comments or you'd like to ask anything further.
0: Well, oh, uh, I have a couple of comments, and it's really impressive. So I want to come back to your education. Mm-hmm. So studying at the two, well, some of the biggest minds of the 20th century, and as well as two leading universities. Um, and of course, you say that you're a academic, but in the end day, you're not the field at any means. You simply choose. I think it's about the choice we made. But I would like to, because I, I am very focused on education. And for me, education is key, and especially the people that make uh, and inspiring as the mentors and so forth. So having studied under Stephen Hawkins and as well um, Roger perros So what the, and as well the background in math, which is a very important thing for the foundations of finance, but as well for everything related with AI, machine learning, and everything that we're living in our world. I want to touch a bit that. So can you tell us a
1: bit about that background? You mean the marriage of well, technology the, with education? Exactly. Ah.
0: Yeah. And as well Well, working with these personalities or studying under these
1: personalities because this normally
0: changes your life as well.
1: well, well, Let's put things into context because at the time when I was at university, I mean, the technological revolution as we understand or know it today was non-existent. You know, I belong to a generation of the log table and the slide rule. We didn't even have mobile phones when I was at university, right? So I'm a little bit before Today, obviously, that game has changed. I mean, so to try to look back and imagine what it would have been like is probably quite a challenge for me because they did not exist at the time. If I had to make an appointment with a tutor, you make an appointment and you either had to go to the Porter's Lodge to make sure if there was any change to be done, because you could not communicate easily the way you can do it today. Today, communication is almost real time or near real time, you know, the way things have changed. So trying to answer that question is a little bit um, of a challenge for me. But if you want my thoughts of where I see education today and then comparing where, yes, that I can do. With, and having had the good fortune of having embarked on this 16 uh, year journey in technology. In fact, I conducted a few interviews, believe it or not, to students in Dubai in November. I, did a, I was asked because I'm, a, I'm an alumni of Oxbridge here. So I give back you know, my time. And you know, they came up to me and said, you know. Many students are applying for Oxbridge today. And uh, could you spend time you know, interviewing two or three? I said, how many are actually interviewing? And they said, maybe 10, 15. I said, I'll do the whole lot. So I did the whole lot, 20 or 30 minutes per child. I interviewed every single one and shared my experience, what it's like to interview for an Oxbridge. And in fact, some of the questions that I was asked, I actually you know, uh, ask them the same questions. And of course, you know, test them on a certain mathematical things and et cetera, et cetera. But one of the questions I did ask to your point about education and tech coming in, I asked them this question today. I said, is it important to, why, why do you need to go to Oxford and Cambridge? If I was sitting down here and D- Dennis, you are at Oxford or Cambridge and you're my tutor. And today I was getting a one-on-one tutorial with you, just like we're talking right now. I'm sitting in Dubai, you're at Oxford or Cambridge. Doesn't that obviate the need for me to go and visit the place? So I asked them exactly this question. It's funny you bring this up. This is precisely what I asked every single student, just to see how they would react to it. And they had different answers. I and mean, they varied from, you no, know, I want to be in the environment. So I said, it's a more social thing than not an academic thing. Then they said, some said, you know, uh, you know uh, I like the one on one interaction between the physical interaction with the tutor. But I said, you know, today, because of COVID and stuff, maybe you cannot have that you know, in person, what will you do? And so there were many, many different answers from the students. But the reality is that it made them think, you know, how things can change. And will these, you know, uh, you know the star, the, the Ivy Leagues, the Oxford, Cambridge of this world, will they hold their uh, uh, position of prominence 20, 30 years down the road? It's a good question to ask. Now, if it's a question of having concentration of some of the brightest minds in the world, clustered in one place. And yes, they, 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 there's a value to that. But at today, today we are all connected through different networks. If I, Is it the education? Is it the mind I want to have access to? Or is it the whole student on-campus experience, plus the minds that I want as a package? So these are some of the questions that I, you know, it was good to hear some of their answers.
0: So coming back to uh, Professor Stephen Hawkins and as well Professor Penrose, because one of the things, at least for me in the university, that marked me was definitely some of the teachers uh, that uh, that I had. And actually, actually, in my case, was actually some of the, the other teachers, people that I respect that I interact because I was in university. And some of them marked the way I think, the way I write, the way I, I do things. And I'm sure it happened the same with you. So I would like to hear that part, because I think sometimes when you talk about the institution, and I think this is particularly important on business. If you look at uh, most of the most successful people in business, uh, whatever business in finance or, or in, in, in business management or technology is people that were changed by a given teacher or two or three or were or, or mentors, it might be a, even a parent or, or a, 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 another figure. So I would like to hear that because especially having studied with some, well, two of the biggest minds of the 20th century or 21st in this case with Ben Rosa still alive. How do you see this part as well?
1: Well, all right, look, uh, there are two things here, the, the tutors and then mentors. Yeah. Yes, while yes. they were me- my mentors, I would say one of the most impactful mentor in my life was not actually my tutors at university, it was my late father. He, 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 the things I've learned, the, the, the pearls of wisdom he shared with me growing up as a child, I use that today. Now, to answer the question back to the university and, and, and those uh, tutors, well i in Cambridge, I will tell you what I learned you know what I observed uh, when Stephen Hawkins used to come in in, in, in his special you know, uh, electric uh, wheelchair. Uh, remember, Stephen Hawkins could not communicate directly with his students, so he used to get a, a graduate student who was assigned to him to spend the first three to four months learning how to communicate with him and it 's that graduate student who would bring Stephen Hawkins into the into our lecture room at the DAMP, which is the Dep- Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at Cambridge. And he would be writing with chalk on the blackboard because he knew how to communicate with Stephen Hawkins. And if there was any question from us, we would have to ask the graduate student who would. So it, it was almost like a modem connecting Stephen Hawkins to us. Okay, so that was one observation there. Now coming back to Oxford, it wasn't uh, Roger Penrose, but there was another uh, 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 tutor professor of mine called Dr. MacLeod who taught me analysis in my second year. And one of the most impactful things he said to me, which I I still quote and I remember uh, 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 till today, is uh, the following. But I remember I was quite shy initially because I'd come from Nigeria to a new place and stuff. And I used to go into his tutorials. And I'm gonna quote word for word exactly what he said because it's left an indelible imprint in my mind, as most mentors do. Those who leave an impression on, or, uh, on, on, on their students. And I remember after remaining quite on successive tutorials, he called me one day and said, "Hassan, come here. He said, the next time you come into my to- tutorial, you attempt to do one of two things. Either you dazzle me with your brilliance or attempt to baffle me with your bullshit. But say something, don't stay quiet. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Those are exactly That's- his words to me. Absolutely. So it means, <laughs> it means get engaged, say something, you know, interact with people.
0: So before we go to, to your business acumen and as well, the different areas you've been doing, so I want to come back to your uh, cultural background. So um, I could just mention Nigeria, um, well, right now it's becoming one of the leading global economies, but when you studied was probably still under the colonial influence and a lot of different things, and as well, Pakistan and Fiji. So all these things mark a person. And of course, Japan, which is a massive as well culture on its own, millions, million, well, it's thousands of years culture, but with a lot of challenges as well and very close. So this all creates a huge perception, first of the world, and second, how to deal with business and special financial transactions because... Uh, let's, let's put it that way. If you do business or finance in Nigeria, it's completely different from doing it in London or even do it in Japan, which is a completely different world as well. And of course, Pakistan. So I would like, I'd like to touch a bit that because of course, uh, I think probably that brought you as well to in interfaith uh, dialogue and all these different areas that is who you are as well today. But I think from my experience, this is what makes the most powerful business people because you have a capacity to flow through different cultures and adapt, and as well, have an intelligence (laughs) to look at it. Um, And it's more
1: important than ever in our world. It was always important in history. So remember, I grew up in Nigeria. So my formative years from the age of two to 18 was in Nigeria. So I was not working, nor was I in business. I was at school. But more importantly, my late father put my brother and I into a boarding school at Nigeria. So from the age of eight, I was in a boarding school. And then from the, that was my primary school. And then from the age of 11 at secondary school, where where I did my O levels and A levels, the English system, right? The secondary school I went to, my brother and I were the only two non Nigerians in boarding school. And this is very, very important. Why? Because there were uh, non Nigerians who attended school, but they were all day scholars. When I look back today, going through a Nigerian you know, boarding school, secondary school education in Nigeria, back then, I don't know, I cannot speak for it today, but certainly back then, um, to me, this was perhaps almost the first seeds of entrepreneurship that were being sown without even me realizing it. Why? You learn how to sink or swim. You learn how to interact with people. You're doing things that you could not imagine doing under the most stringent of all conditions. And I'm talking very, very primitive uh, conditions, which today, if people, if I if I talked to about them, people will, will 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 not be able to relate with. Yet that's the path I went through from a very young age. Today, you throw any curveball at me, you know, uh, short 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 uh, uh, from from a bullet to my head, I, I can survive it. I can survive it because of that education that I went through in Nigeria in the boarding school. And that is something that I think uh, viewers or listeners to your show should understand. I mean, the, the power it gives um, um, students to deal and cope with all the various curveballs that get thrown at any person later on in life, you, you go through that motions. And, and, and at the same time, you have a lot of fun because you're making friends, you know, all the, all the things, playing games, going to school. You know, you, you get up in the morning, you're in the dorms. You 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 have you have food in the in the dining hall, and you go to the classrooms, and it's an amazing amazing experience, but wonderful experience in my, in my opinion. Yes.
0: No, it's very powerful because, like you mentioned, it it gives you a strength. First of all, it's like uh, being out of the water because it's a completely different culture, and as well uh, at the time I imagined the culture was much more powerful than than even now because we are more global right now than probably at, uh, when you were yes. a child. So that's quite impressive. Um, but, but,
1: sorry, we, we, the, the other thing I want to mention is today, you know, people suddenly see Nigeria, as as you even mentioned a few minutes ago, as one of the, you know, growing growing countries in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, it's got potential, it's got size, it's got scale, it's got a youthful population. Any, any you know, economists coming out of the IMF or the World Bank or every, everybody's got Nigeria on their radar, regardless of you know, the path Nigeria has taken to get to this point. Yet, going there from the outside without understanding or having local terrain knowledge in Nigeria um, can be a challenge to a lot of people. You know, all they do is read what's out floating around in the press, which is not representative of Nigeria. There's good and bad everywhere in the world. Yet, people tar the whole country with the same brush, which is wrong, which is absolutely wrong. And it's simply out of ignorance, if nothing else. Having gone through the system, having grown up with the people in, 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 in Nigeria, having experienced them firsthand, some of the brightest minds have come out of Nigeria, and even from my own school. You can Google a name, Jilani Aliu, for example. He was the guy from my school. He, he came after me, who actually General Motors uh, gave a lot of accolades for having the best design of General Motors cars in the United States. You can Google this name, look it up. And that gentleman came from my school in Nigeria, the same town, Sokoto. And we're very proud of that. So the point is, the point is, there's talent raw everywhere. And there's good everywhere. But if you don't know how to access it, or you can't relate with it, because you haven't been through the system, or you don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture, then of course, you know, uh, cross-cultural exchange is a barrier unto itself, you know? I mean, uh, it's, it's, like, it's like having a modem today. Somebody speaks Japanese, somebody speaks French, and they can't communicate with each other, which is why technology is trying to solve this problem now, so that we can communicate with each other and understand each other. But having gone through the system, I'm, I'm blessed to have been, been privileged to, to really uh, understand Nigerian culture and, of course, on a broader scale, African culture as a result.
0: Yeah, I think this is very important. And I think it's something that we need to nurture and support much more because now, especially with COVID and all these digital parts that we have, sometimes we forget this cultural background, for instance, the way we speak, the way we interact, the cultural nuances. This makes a big difference, special for global companies and for any business that wants to, to, to uh, thrive in this uh, global world. So you created, uh, uh, like you mentioned, you had the first company, then you create private tea. That's so right. can you tell us about uh, this uh, creation, because private has been growing quite significant and it's a very established um, company with a lot of uh, uh, global footprint well, as well over the Middle East. So a bit of background.
1: Well, the, to get a bit of background, I think one should understand my first startup, because the first startup leads into the second startup. And the first startup came out of when I left Nico. And I left Niko. I mean, I used to pick stocks for a living and I was trading a lot of Japanese stocks and uh, derivatives of the stocks, you know, convertible bonds and warrants, equity warrants. These were long-dated call options issued by Japanese corporate borrowers to raise capital in the euro markets. And um, then I set up my own shop, Hassan Financial Corporation. So I became independent, doing what I was doing at NICO, but I corporatized myself and you know got the regulatory badge to start that business. It was in the first three years of HFC that I actually made multiple returns on my own capital. And that was my first taste of entrepreneurship. But remember, my background was purely solely and wholly focused on the public markets. It wasn't until 2002 that I was on an Emirates flight going to Karachi uh, around November time that um, I transited in Dubai for the first time for 48 hours, because they used to offer a 48-hour free layover. And in that layover, I knew one guy who picked me up at the airport for my London days. I went to his house on Sheikh Zayed Road. I'm sure Rachel will know it because she's based in Dubai. And um, um, I was with him for 48 hours. And the idea was to you know, just uh, do a pit stop in Dubai and then carry on to Karachi afterwards. The very first day on his balcony, uh, in 2002, I remember I went out just after sunset. And when the evening breeze blew, I smelled the desert. And I made a remark earlier on in your, as we started this uh, chat about growing up 200 miles south of the Sahara Desert. So 24 years had passed. This, I had, we had this 24-year hiatus where I had not experienced the desert. I was in London, I was in Europe, I was in Tokyo, I was in New York, no desert, right? In that 48 hours. And I call this serendipity because had I not gone out, had I not stayed at this place, it's almost like sliding doors. I, I took a left turn instead of a right turn. And that actually is the reason why I'm sitting in Dubai today. I fell in love with this because I smelled the desert reminded me of my childhood, brought lovely memories back from my days in Sokoto. And I said, where on earth is this place that I've come to that reminds me of my childhood? I didn't know solely other than this one guy. And that's how my journey started in Dubai. 18 years ago. And of course, for the first two years, I was commuting between London and Dubai. Now, I traded the Japanese markets in London. I used to trade the graveyard shift, meaning from midnight to 6 o'clock London time, or from 1 to 7 winter summer times. Doing the same business in Dubai, I found the time zone-wise better from 4 a.m. to 10 in the morning, rather than all night. So if you got up very early, you could, you could wrap up by 10 in the morning. By the time people are getting to their second cups of coffee, you, 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 you had wrapped up the day. But at least you didn't have to stay up all night like I did in London. So That was another feature of uh, Dubai that I found quite attractive in terms of somebody who trades in the Far Eastern market, specifically Japan in my case. The third thing was for doing exactly what I was doing in London, but out of Dubai, I was giving myself a pay rise because there's no tax. So after two years of commuting in 02 and 03, I looked myself in the mirror one day and said, Salim, this is in London in my apartment. You love the place. The hours are kinder, and you've got to pay rights. Which of these three things do you not understand? Well, guess what? I voted with my feet, got on a plane, said bye bye, and moved to Dubai. This is how my journey in Dubai started. Now, having come to Dubai, I rented a place again on Sheikh Zayed Road in a building called Number One Towers, and back in the day, the pound was seven plus to the dirham, so relative to London, you know, certain things looked very cheap, quote unquote. Obviously, a lot of things have normalised today, uh, in in more ways than one. Uh, but I'm telling you, the initial reaction, you know, for example, I used to fill my uh, car uh, petrol in the car in London. The same car, you know, like for like, would cost eighty to hundred pounds in London. I couldn't even spend 10 pounds back then to fill the car up in Dubai, for example, okay? And um, so these kind of things were, you know, my first experiences of Dubai having moved here. But the very next morning when I get up to trade Japan, I remember I had no other business here. I just fell in love with the place and moved here. As simple as that. So I I trade Japan and then of course the market closes at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then I'm looking myself in the mirror, I'm like, what on earth have you done, Salim? You're an idiot. You know, you've got up, you don't know a soul here. You move to a country you don't know, but just because your heart's fallen in love with it, this is not a good enough reason. So that's when the second seed of entrepreneurship got sown. And I'm really walking you through the genesis of how privity came about. And this is important because it was not planned. I didn't have a plan for privity, It evolved through circumstances. So I looked around, and when I looked around Dubai, back then, Dubai was in build mode. I call it Dubai 1.0, and what do I mean by that? <clears throat> there were uh, it was real estate and construction. There's was one big, uh, you know, uh, cranes and uh, construction going on everywhere. And of course, I don't come from a construction or real estate background, so I, I, I did not relate or connect with it as much. So I was really trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do after 10 o'clock in the morning after the Tokyo market closes? I mean. Yes, I want to start. Should I, should I open up a branch of the, that business here in Dubai and duplicate the cost? Doesn't make sense. Or maybe this is an opportunity for me to diversify away from the public markets in Japan, because I was a one trick pony up till then, just focusing on one market for so long and see if there's a way I can get involved with something else. So I looked around and I, I then said to myself, you know, I call it the sandstorm effect. I said, there's one way to really get to know a place or to get hit by a sandstorm. And having grown up in a desert, I know what sandstorms are all about. And there's only one way, uh, Dennis, and that is to stand inside it. There's no other way to get hit by a sandstorm. And that's what I did. So I went, got on a plane, went to Saudi, went to Qatar, went to Kuwait, went to Oman, up and down the place to get a recce of this region. And my conclusion back then was, all these countries at various degrees of, um, in build mode, some a bit more advanced, some a bit less, but they're all in that real estate construction phase. Obviously, you know, they're, they're, there's the, the government businesses involved in oil and gas in different uh, of, of the nations, but as in terms of development and stuff, they're all going through that cycle. Of course, when you're starting a new business, you don't have a track record, you're not connected, you're not... Where do you start? Just like my first business, I you know, invested in myself. Well, that's what I decided to do. So I came up with this idea of privity. And um, it's actually a legal term. And because I come from a family of lawyers, I've always been exposed to legal jargon from a very, very young age. It's from privity of contract. And uh, I liked the name. It, it sounded nice. And so I, I came up with that. But I had no clue what privity should do. And that's when I went back to the drawing board again. Now, a lot of entrepreneurs, the really clever ones, know exactly what they want to do. They have a vision. They want to go and focus and execute it. So I said to myself, I said, look, there's no point trying to be a multinational when, you, when you're just one guy with an idea. I mean, nobody's going to take you seriously. Pick one thing and focus on it, whatever that one thing is. Start off small. And focus on it. Well, what did I conclude back then? And I used to share this with friends way back in two thousand two, three, and four. And that's what I decided to do. I say I'm going to pick one thing. It starts with a T, and it's called technology. And I'm going to focus on technology. Why? And now I even quoted in my presentations. I say technology is the only discipline I've identified that has the ability to alter our ways of life. Whether we choose to embrace it or not, semicolon, even religion cannot do that. Pay attention. What do I mean by that? Everything in life, Dennis, we have the luxury of choice. Sadly, technology does not give you the luxury of choice. And when I realized the power and potency of this hydro headed monster coming at me, I said, I don't have the strength to stand in front of it. I'm going to step aside, go around, jump on this train, and go with it. That's the only way to avoid it. Because I can't take this, 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 this monster on head on. And honestly, when I look back, it's probably the best thing I ever did. And that ties up with something that happened many, many years ago in 1977, when I was talking to my late mom and dad, and I, uh, you know, when I, when I told them I want to go and study mathematics at university, the immediate reaction of my late mom was no, well, what you, what are you going to do? You get a profession, become an engineer or do something. But my late father said something wonderful, and this is what I love, and I, even, and I even shared with entrepreneurs today. He said, let him follow his heart. He has a passion for math, let him do it. When I look back, Privity 2004, and what my father told me about mathematics, and where tech is going, and what is the language of tech, you tell me. You know, I mean, you know, it's, it all ties together, but I'm, I'm picking up these different da- data points in my life to show you how things come together. Maybe not today, but one day, you know, there's a confluence of events or factors that come together that create opportunities where and you can't even see where they're coming from, but that's how it started off. So again, back to the drawing board. I mean, technology covers a multitude of sins. Where do you start? It's a monster. Again, I went back to the drawing board. So what did I do? I said, look, we all don't know our path going forward, when we don't know our path going forward, we end up working for somebody, right? They, they run the path, we just join them. Or you try to create your own path, or there's a third way. Each and every one of us is blessed because we all carry a rucksack on our backs. What rucksack? The rucksack of our past. All our data points are sitting on our backs. That's all I did. I looked over my shoulder, looked in my rucksack. Salim, what is it that you've done? Or you were picking stocks in Japan. Okay. If you're picking stocks in Japan, write in a sentence what you were doing. Just write in a little sentence. I was acting as a modem linking capital with ideas, modem being the platform, NICO or HFC, capital being the clients, ideas being the stocks I'm picking. Okay. Let privity be a modem linking capital with ideas. Am I reinventing the wheel? No. I'm just taking what I've done in the past taking it out of univariate space, putting it into multivariate space, corporatizing, calling it privity and giving it a name. So I'm giving it structure, right? But what capital and what ideas? That was the next question. So again, I went back to the drawing board, Dennis. And what did I do? Again, and this is where, you know, the STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, the way our minds work. Again, others can do it with all respect, but STEM and this is why i advocate everybody should do stem everybody in this world because this is where the world is going tomorrow so if i did it so many years ago and it's benefiting me today well i can share that information you know i mean it, it is the language of everything that moves you know the laws of the nature the laws of the universe there's mathematics behind it right anyways so what did i do i said to myself all right i was picking stocks in japan hmm okay So what is this? It's a share in a company. I'm trying to capture alpha, you know, five to 10% alpha. Otherwise you buy a, a tracker, an ETF and go to sleep, right? You don't have to pick a stock. You only pick a stock because you think you're going to outperform the market on the way up or the way down. So, and remember that the year is 2004. I'm right in the middle of a Japanese bear market. Okay. I didn't make money at HFC in a bull market. I made money in a bear market. All right. So it's, not that you cannot make money in a bear market. I've lived. I mean, the bull market finished in '89 when I was still at Nikko. I've I've lived a bear market all my life. You know, uh, zero interest rate policies came out of Japan. I mean, the movie we're watching today in in most parts of the Western world. You know, uh, I've watched that movie a long time ago. All right. So I'm thinking to myself. All right, these stocks represent shares in companies. If I was to draw a Venn diagram, almost like the screens we're looking at today. You're on the left side, I'm the right side. And there's a line in the middle. If this was a Venn diagram, and I was take, to take all the companies in the world and put them inside these two boxes, how many slices and dices of these boxes do I have to do to accommodate every single company in the world? And my answer was, one, I draw a line in the middle. You're on the left side, and I'm on the right side. And every company in the world will fit in one of those two boxes. By that, I mean it's either private or it's public. Yeah. And that line in the middle that's dividing our screens is called an IPO, Dennis. When I cross from the left to the right, I take a company public, and vice versa, you can take it private. But remember, my experience had been up to now, both at Nikko and at HFC, <clears throat> in the right-hand side, the public domain, because I was trading on the public markets. I didn't know anything about the private world. I'm, I'm walking you through the process of what I call ratiocination of how I arrived into the private world, because that's not my background. But just, I, I walked, I'm just step by step going through it. And anyways, I asked myself two questions. Question one, what do I call this data point, the stock I'm picking on the public side, let's reverse engineer, let's go backwards. Mathematicians, engineers always reverse engineer. So I, I did the same thing. What do I call this company a day before it goes public? Late stage private, pre-IPO, for want of a better phrase. So I started peeling the onion backwards. Middle stage, early Oh, at T equals zero, all these stocks I'm picking were once upon a time an idea in someone's head. Okay, kind of made sense. From T equals zero to IPO, I don't know that world. IPO onwards, I've been playing in the public pond for all my professional life up till that point. And then I asked myself a second question. For this five to 7% or 10% alpha I'm trying to capture in the public domain, what value got unleashed, unlocked by that same data point there from T equals zero to IPO? So I started digging for data, Dennis. 5X, 10X, 100X, 1000X. When I saw those numbers, immediately a light bulb exploded in my head. I said to myself, this is the reason and purpose for privity's existence. I want to find and go as close to T equals zero as possible and find these puppies for myself, go and hunt for entrepreneurs.
0: I love the way you think because it's very data-driven and very structured, which I think it's key for business. And the, and I think it highlights as well um, all your background and the way you've been putting things together. And that brings me to my next question, which is precisely about that. So. In your career you've been going through the multiple changes in the capital markets industry and financial industry at large that has been lately being transformed by data stem and technology and this like you mentioned just now became actually the mainstream because in the end of the day whatever you are in finance or in healthcare you're dealing with technology and precisely with that frame of mind that you just mentioned although most of our society probably didn't even look at that properly especially our governments institutions but uh, you have been leading on that especially the way you've been leading privity is precisely on that and i like the way you put it so how do you see this going forward because one of the at least from my experience and i've been working with countries ministers and governments and so forth the challenge i've been facing and even with education is that we have a bit of a fragmented way of looking at this and i think if you don't look at the way you put it we're going to have a big challenge going forward. We might have a very dystopic world. So I would like to hear your views precisely on this bridge between the financial markets. We were actually the first industry to be completely digitized. 80% to 90% of transactions in the world right now are used using technology. Nickel is one of the powerhouse that you work for, but as well, everything in trading and investment is all about algorithms, hedge funds and very advanced um, technology. So I would like to hear that. And as well, how this brought you into the work you've been doing with technology, with venture capital
1: and so forth. All right. Well, obviously I, I told you exactly how I came up to T equals U as, you know, how I moved from the public world, uh, into the private space in search of alpha. Okay. That's all it was when you're searching for alpha, you, you, you need to find a logical way of getting to that point. Now, obviously, Picking a stock and picking an entrepreneur are two different skill sets. There's something in common. There's a lot to learn. For the last 16 years, I've been studying that world, learning that world. But who from? Not from VCs, but from entrepreneurs. All right. Um, Yes, VCs have a certain structure, a certain process. That's fine. Um, I'm, I'm doing it in a different way. Uh, It's a combination of lots of different things. A lot of it is based on data, as you said, driven. My background is mathematical. That's the lens through which I look at everything. At the same time, I try to go and cut deals with entrepreneurs. I don't have a formal fund. I'm a fundless sponsor at Privity. And what I try to do is find interesting entrepreneurs, partner with them, work with them, roll my sleeves up, go into the trenches with them and help them build and grow. Because only when you know and appreciate their pain points you can try to help them, and you know, as I told somebody once before, I said, "You know what mathematicians and entrepreneurs have a similar mind, mindset because mathematicians are solving problems, and so are entrepreneurs. so our way of thinking must be similar because that 's what you, we both do for a living now, coming back to the ecosystems. Um, Let's let's start with one of the biggest ecosystems for entrepreneurs and VCs in the world, Silicon Valley. How did Silicon Valley evolve? If you go back into the history, there's something called a trihelic structure where three things came together, the public sector, the private sector, and academia. OK, one, two, three. They all came together. And over the years, they all learned from each other, communicated, helped each other. The ideas coming out of you know the academia, see if you can develop them, commercialize them, maybe work with the public and private sector to develop and grow that. That then morphed into the Pentagon structure where you had the public, private, academia, entrepreneurs, and VCs the five different you know points on the Pentagon. I Put it now, we've moved, we're morphing into the hexagon structure. While all those five are important to build a flourishing ecosystem, an entrepreneurial ecosystem, there's one data point that is very, very important, especially in today's day and age, and that's the quality of life and standard of living. Why? If you've got to attract talent and skills of people and you want to develop a very flourishing ecosystem, well, the chances are. God forbid you're trying to develop in a war-torn area. Well, first you won't do that, but I'm giving a very you know, extreme example. Nobody would go there, right? And even if people do come there, if they're not comfortable or happy or satisfied, the chances are, because it's not their natural environment, it's taking somebody out of Ukraine and putting them into you know, the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, the chances are they may survive a week, two weeks, a month, maybe but the chances they may not. And they will want to go back home. Also, I'm giving a very you know, a random example, um, and so on and so forth. But these, these things are important. Here in Dubai, in the UAE uh, specifically, they have made it a point to create an environment. Because remember, this is one of the few countries that I know of, that I've lived in in the world, that has inverted demographics. You have 200 nationalities from the outside. You've got about 8, 9, 10 million people. I don't know the last census but say 10 million for the for ease of uh, 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 showing an example, you probably got at most 1 million locals, Emiratis, and 9 million foreigners. That number could be up and down, but I'm giving a ballpark. When I came, it was about 4 million. Now we've grown over the 16 years, but it's still inverted. And when it's inverted, it means you've got lots of foreigners here. So you've got lots of different nationalities, You know, from Asian, European. African, American, Latin American—you name it—all over the world. And in a way, this is one of the biggest beauties and blessings of this place. I mean, you could be talking to an Indian in the morning, a Filipino in the afternoon, and a Russian in the evening—all on the same day. You know, but it's all—it's all—it's all available here. But if you—but these people will stay here only if they find the environment conducive and comfortable. And that's the sixth. Point I was talking about on the on the uh, to create this flourishing ecosystem. I hope that paints a little picture of if you want to you know develop uh, entrepreneurial ecosystems, these things are important and they all have to play. So the rule of law must be there. Academia must kick in play its part. Now, in my opinion, 2016 was a year we shifted to Dubai 2.0. Remember, I talked about Dubai 1.0, and that was when they invested in labor camps. Labour camps, the building blocks they used to build the infrastructure of this place. The gear shifted, for my opinion, in 16. That was when I first started feeling a tailwind behind privity. All right. What do I mean by that? In the first five years of privity, it was a write-off, nothing. Because I was too early. And it was all still building, building scrapers, you know, high rises, roads, hospitals, airports, whatever. You know, as an entrepreneur, that was my vision. I made a mistake, I came too early. Oh, it, it was what was meant to be. I don't think in an, if you embark on an entrepreneurial journey, anything you do is never a mistake. It's either you succeed or you learn. You succeed, you learn, you succeed, you learn. Mistakes don't come in my life. You learn. It's God's way of giving you a second chance. You know, this is how I look at life, you know? And however tough the day might be, however difficult it might be, you learn from it, and you say thank you, and you start the next day, again. So uh, to me, to me now we've moved into Dubai 2.0. They're shifting to the knowledge economy. They're moving up the value chain. So if the whole real estate construction journey, you know, it, it started way before I moved to Dubai. If that spanned a period of 20 years. I put it to you, we're just at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the knowledge economy. This is four years into from my starting off point, and I have a reason why I'm 616, because that's when the Dubai Futures Accelerator started, the Blockchain Council of Dubai, lots of signs came up, you know? Uh, different hubs, different ecosystems were being developed, and then across the region. If that was the starting off point, this is not a four year journey, uh, in my humble opinion, Dennis. This is going to outlive me. This is a 30 to 50 year play. They're now working on you know, sending uh, probes to Mars and sp- rockets to Mars and all sorts of things going on here. And then, of course, as you know, the whole uh, Abraham court thing happened this year as well. Who knows where this journey and you know, these, these uh, uh, participations between different groups will happen. But if you want to focus on the knowledge economy, there are certain things you need to look for. And I, I see those signs, the, the green shoots of that happening right now. And there's never a better time in my life to live in a place than living in the UAE as a, than right now. I'm very grateful I took made that decision 16 years ago. And I believe the best is yet to come, from the way I look at things, yes.
0: That's wonderful. and I love the way you put it, because it's it's really the the sum of the different things. If you look at what makes uh, precisely a successful environment is all these triple X that you mentioned working together and working, enhancing each other. So I want to precisely, it's one of the questions I have here is precisely, so during, um, well, the the journey of private and as well your journey in Dubai, you saw, like you mentioned, uh, Dubai being uh, an exotic point in the Middle East to become a powerhouse that is right now one of the most uh, visited places in the world. And as well, a powerhouse in terms of growth in technology development, and as well, in terms of uh, leadership in a lot of different things, actually, it's probably one of the biggest brands that emerged in the space of 10 years, which is quite amazing because it's competing with uh, even London and other places. So, but as well, you mentioned as well, all the ecosystem around the manor, which is very important because all these countries are really growing.
1: Yeah. Look, so how do you see I, all
0: of these things? Yeah. And then there's right. all a little bit of some of the summaries of sure. you. saw. So I,
1: I, I, I want to put things in proportion to viewers While privity is a small firm. My vision is very, very big. Right. And as, as I get more and more involved with entrepreneurs, the asset value of privity could potentially grow its paper, but it has the potential. And remember in any, uh, venture type of business, you don't need all of your portfolio to do a on one Delta. And that's a term from the public market. You just need one. You get a Facebook or a Google out of your portfolio, well, the complexion of any VC portfolio will, will, will look very, very different. And that's the bets we make, you know. we're all looking for that outlier. And of course, it's your good fortune to meet the entrepreneurs, right? But to come back to your question, um, how, you know, the, 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 the journey. So as I said, the first five years was a write-off. And that's why I got uh, involved in a couple of ventures back then that have got nothing to do with tech. And that could be a proper segue getting into the whole thing about art, because I got involved with an oil and gas venture in Nigeria and I got involved with Ralph Hyman, the artist, you know, and that happened in my first five years. So when you look at my website and you see a tech portfolio, you'll see two things that are not tech. And to me, that's my legacy here, that's my journey, because there was, there was no tech here when I, when I started, or at least I didn't come into contact with it, I'm sure there must have been, but it was still very embryonic, the way it's structured and where it's morphing today, was not what it was back then when I started off. And that's why as an entrepreneur, I, I didn't waste time after the Japanese markets closed, I had known of Ralph from way behind. And whenever you want to talk about that and talk about what's behind me, it's your call. But just to finish off the journey, so uh, in the last 11 years, I've done about a dozen or so bets in technology. Three companies didn't work out, meaning they've crashed. I've had three small exits out of the portfolio. First one came out of Chicago, out of Jay Pritzker's incubator in Chicago, a company called CareMerge. The second uh, uh, small exit I had was a company called Loyal. That was their first blockchain Technology investment that I'd done. They were focusing on the Internet of loyal, uh, Loyalty. And that company actually got picked up. It's based in San Francisco, It got picked up by the Dubai Futures Accelerator in their first cohorts in September 16. That was the first ever cohort of the Dubai Futures Accelerator. And back then, they received 2,274 applications from 73 countries. And the six Dubai entities on that platform picked 30 companies from the global pool. So less than 2% of the application pool. Of those 30 companies, one came from my humble portfolio. It was called Loyal. And that's part of the journey here today. And the third exit I had was a company called Boloro. And that came out of uh, New York. It's a a company focusing on mobile payments and authentication. And yeah, so uh, this year I made a couple of, uh, few more additions to the portfolio. One out of Holland, a company, Mobility as a Service. And then more recently, my first ever MENA, GCC UAE startup called Verifax. That's the first one I've ever done in the region in 16 years. And that happened this year, right in the middle of COVID, you know, so, yeah, so there's opportunity, you know, and as long as you've got an open mind and you're willing to hear and listen to, you know, everybody, there's there's a chance you'll meet these people. But if you are narrow minded and blinkered, and you're not open to talking and to people, then the Opportunity will not knock on your door.
0: Completely. And, and that is very, uh, very special. And I like the way you put it as well, because it's about the people and the ecosystem we build around this. So Correct. Th- this, this brings us to the, my next question. And uh, uh, if you still have time, I still want to sure, g- a couple more questions. So please, please. one of the things that is very powerful in your vision is this capacity to look Um, over different disciplines, different areas and as well the interfaith dialogue which is very important because especially in a world that is very divided and especially the last couple of years have been very tricky. Um, So how do you see this and you have as well a beautiful painting behind you that reflects that so probably can use that but I'd like to see this work that you've been doing in interfaith dialogue and focus because I think this Although it goes to religion, it goes to culture, but it goes a lot to business as well. Because I think part of the success of Dubai, like you mentioned, is this capacity to have different organizations. And if you look, any metropolis that has been successful in history of mankind are the ones that are able to put all the different cultures coexisting. All from Mesopotamia to Israel to um, to, of course, uh, um, Austria in the beginning of the 20th century, London, Paris, they were always inter- intercultural places, even yes. if normally sometimes the history forgets that. But yeah, I would like to, to hear a bit about that work you're doing and as well your So, so, passion. so, so
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to share that. Um, there are a few observations I will make, because I, I, I will certainly take zero credit for this. I, I, I give full credit uh, to the vision and leadership of the founders and rulers of this country um, who, and I'm talking about the late uh, Sheikh Zayed, who was the founder. Um, some of his sayings, if you read about what he said, what he believed in, um, really sets the, and I'm, I, I, mean, I don't mean this in a hollow way. sets the standards for humanity, really. And I fundamentally believe in that. Then you superimpose that. You know, if you if you, if you've got if you're thinking of building a house, you first do the piling and plumbing and making sure that the house is firm. Well, that's what Sheikh Zayed's vision was. He wanted to make sure the, the 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 bedrock of this nation that I'm building is solid. And how do you make it solid? You have to make sure there's equality for all, there's tolerance, there's love, there's openness, there's communication. These are the these are the things you need right? You won't enjoy all this. If that was not there, your house would be shaky. So if you're building a society that's not based on these sort of tenets, how do you expect the house to stand? How do you expect the house to stand? You know, and it it needs really the vision of leadership because once my late father used to tell me, it takes the person on the top to set the example, everybody else falls in line. You know, I talk about my own country, in Pakistan, people eat this uh, something called, uh, you know, pan, which is uh, beetle leaf, and of course, then they, you know, they decide to spit it out, which is in a Western society, it'd be frowned upon; it would be considered very gauche, right? Yet the same people, if they came here, a they won't eat it because it's not allowed here. But even if say they were were able to do so, they will f- fall in line because the leaders set the example. Somebody who might litter, you know, the streets or do something back home will not do that here, you know, because you respect other people and you respect the environment and you respect your fellow person so that we can all exist in harmony. Now that's on the one side. Then when it comes to my own fundamental beliefs, Dennis, I always ask these two questions to anybody, regardless of color, creed, religion, race. And And I'll ask you the same question now. Dennis, how many hours are there in your day? Answer. Same hours of anyone else. <laughs> yes. Thank you. So you have 24, I have 24, but Rachel has 24, hernaldo has 24, and, and so on and so forth. So on what basis is Rachel's time more valuable than yours, or yours time more valuable than mine? Because in mathematics, this is a constant. And the first differential of any constant, as you know, is what? Zero. So on what basis is somebody saying my time is more valuable than yours? This is how I think. Second, so it, and, and the chorology that we have to respect each other's time because it's finite and it's a constant and it's the same. So we have to respect each other's time, number one. Number two, we take four of us on this, on this screen right now and we ask each of us to take our left wrist up and do a little cut. Now, if the color that came out from any one of us is different from red, I would like to know about it. So this is how I look at humanity. We're all the same. There's no difference. Zero difference in our structure and the number of hours that we have in a day or the time that's leased to us in life. Our time is leased to us. We don't have freehold. We have leasehold. And anybody who comes to the real estate world will understand that. Why? Because there's a day we are born and there's a day we die, right? Each of us. One box has been ticked, the other one, God give all of us long life and health. But this is important. And once you realize the importance of having your time, your life, the, the time in your life being leased to you, it makes you think differently. So I will leave it at that. because no, I, can that's, de- that's, I, can, I can get very deep and philosophical into this, but these are my
0: thoughts. But it's very inspirational. And I like as well the way you synthesize it and summarize it because it's very important. And I think it, 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 it is key because if you don't face this series, you won't uh, get the results as well. So that brings me to the next one. So you've been nurturing a special uh, passion for arts. And, uh, and you've been actually creating as well an ecosystem around that that actually complements as well probably your work on technology and entrepreneurship in a lot of ways and in technology. Yes. yes. So can you tell us and elaborate how you've been
1: seeing this? Well, look, look, I mean, both my wife and I, we've been collecting art, you know, independently. And then of course, after we got married, you know, I first started, I think I I bought my first piece ever in New York in the middle to late eighties. So a good 30 plus years ago. And I, again, whilst I'm no, you know, yes, I'm a collector, but I'm not, uh, I wouldn't call myself an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I have a very simple and fundamental approach to art. And I think I shared some of that with Rachel when she came in the other day. I said, you know, your pocket's got to afford it and your eyes got to like it because it's hanging on your wall. So if it's, if you don't like it, A, and you can't afford it, well, if you can't afford it, you won't buy it. But if you can afford it and you buy it, you better like it because it's going to hang on your wall and you don't want to see something hanging on your wall that you don't like, right? It doesn't make sense. So those are my fundamental beliefs in in, in acquiring art but when it came to this particular gentleman whose painting is behind me and this this painting you know uh, it, it's almost like you know when you drive a motorcycle with a sidecar right this this journey of this artist has almost become like a sidecar in my life it's not my main line or business but where it's taking me to and what is happening in the region that i'm in and the message ...of this particular painting, how it evolved and how it transpired, you know, um, I have no words. In fact, I recently actually gave a podcast specifically on this particular journey, this 20-year journey of mine, which I won't, I won't go in all, the all details, but uh, you, you, can, I, you can reference it here. But it was all about an artist, my journey, a papal visit, and the Abraham Accord, all in one. And the journey started 20 years ago when I had the good fortune... Of meeting Ralph Hymans, Australian-born, a Dutch father, Lebanese mother. He was living in Montmartre in Paris, and um, you know, I got a call from a friend of mine at Lehman Brothers and said, "Do you want to meet Ralph Hymans?" And you know, I, I immediately said, "Does he trade Japan?" And the guy said, "No, he's an artist." And I'm. And by the way, this story, uh, Dennis, is one of the biggest lessons of my life as well. Today. Somebody knocks on your door and says, I want to talk to you, Salim. My door is open. I do not say no to anybody who is kind enough to reach out to me for the first cup of coffee. You know, and uh, that's just my nature because if I hadn't met Ralph, the story that unfolded over the 20 years is actually one of the most beautiful stories of my life. And it's got nothing to do with tech, it involves, yes, art. And it involves this painting behind me called The Dialogue, whose subject matter is interfaith. As you can see on the left, that's the uh, Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. And the three gentlemen on the right, they're standing, represent all three uh, of the Abrahamic faiths, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. And this is early days Dubai. I just started Private in 2004. And uh, after a year, no tech, I had a team of seven people. We're all trying to get that business off the ground. And as an entrepreneur, I'm sitting there twiddling with my thumbs, you know, burning, burning cash every month. And then I had an idea. I said, look, I'd met this guy in London and I'd commissioned him actually on the spot. And that's a separate story. And I said, let me reach out to him and see maybe now he's my friend. I was his, you know, a client and maybe we could become business partners. And we did. And this was the first commission Ralph did in Dubai 15 years ago was the client asked him to paint something that depicts the region 15 years ago and focus on interfaith. Now, as it so happened, after the painting was complete, Ralph flew over to Dubai for the first time to hand it over to uh, the client who had approved it, paid it, everything. I was one year old in Dubai. And when we unveiled it in his office, he took one look, and guess what? He flipped. He said, I don't want the painting. Why? Well, there's a guy wearing a kippah, a yamaka. And um, that was it. I did not know what to say because I was one year old in Dubai. This is a very influential guy. So we gave him his money back. We walked out. Ralph was crestfallen. And you know, I, I didn't know what to say. And I actually turned around to Ralph. I was his, you know, his business partner. I wasn't legally or contractual, but I do anything but we felt bad. And I, and I turned around and said to Ralph, I'll acquire it. And honestly speaking, you know, I'd love his work. I loved it when I commissioned him 20 years ago for myself and that's on my website. And that's how I've had the dialogue for the last 15 years. Now the story that has unfolded in the last 15 years is nothing short of a miracle. If you ask me, He got his first royal commission in 2006, Princess Mary of Denmark. He was chosen as the only artist by Buckingham Palace in 2012 by the Queen for the Diamond Jubilee to paint the Queen. That painting is at the Westminster Abbey in the UK today. Fast forward, you know, uh, uh, 17, you know, there was a whole write up in one of the magazines here about an interfaith art. Fast forward 1819, There was a big announcement that history is going to be made in this country in February 19 when Pope Francis visited here and conducted a mass in Abu Dhabi for about 100,000 Catholic Christians. And guess what? Every paper, newspaper, article, and I've collected all this information, talked about the two words that the Pope cared about. And Dennis, guess what those two words are? One is interfaith, the second is dialogue. And that's when I kind of i said what is going on here this is a painting subject matter interfaith. it's called the dialogue and anyway the journey continues and and then of course um, you know what happened on august the 13th when the announcement happened of the abraham accord and on september the 15th it became a reality the relationships got normalized at at white house signed by you know signed by uh, abz and Uh, Netanyahu and Donald Trump, you know, they were all there, all covered by the press. And for me to look back and say, you know, here's a time where a certain person here in Dubai had certain views about this. And today the leadership have taken a totally open view to normalize these relationships. You know, I've lived both times in Dubai. And yet, I stood by Ralph 15 years ago. And that's what's behind me is testimony to what I did 15 years ago. So, to me, it's delightful to know that today, you know, 50,000 Israelis have already visited the UAE since the Abraham Accord has been announced. That was in the Jerusalem Post as of this morning or yesterday. You know, and so many things are changing here. Now, whether it's Where it will go, how it will happen, how to evolve, time will tell. But I mean, I've lived these moments from that time. So interfaith dialogue to me is paramount between people of the universe, people of this planet. It is paramount. You know, you don't achieve anything by trying to uh, force people to, you have to be open. You can respect each other's views. You can agree to disagree. But with respect, with respect, because first of all, we're all equal in the eyes of whatever. Doesn't matter how powerful you are, big you are, or small you are. You're all equal. These are my fundamental beliefs, uh, Dennis. You know, I give you respect. You give me respect.
0: So, so I think uh, uh, probably in order to wrap up, and I think I have quite a lot of questions, but I'll try to wrap up right now. We've been passing one hour and a half. So. Um, we've been in a very particular difficult year, and of course, I have uh, uh, COVID nineteen has been a disruptor in many ways. Uh, of course, over there in Dubai, there was the Expo two thousand twenty that is going to be probably right now two thousand twenty one. There was the Olympic Games in Japan that were delayed as well. Um, so it had been an impact on health, financial and economics, but it has been as well a fast forward accelerator of digital and technological transformation. I know that Dubai has been prepared for this for a long time because it's one of the most advanced. But in general, from your experience as an investor, as someone that is in this multi ecosystem of VC investment, early stage, and as well more advanced, how do you envision this in terms of macro in our society? How do you see this, especially with your experience and different hats that you have?
1: Okay, I mean, I can vouch for that. So, whilst you know, COVID was a curveball thrown at all of us. You know, it came just literally as the year was starting. Suddenly, it all by February, you know. Uh, but yet I can say, you know, by God's grace, the last five months for privity, my tiny little business here, has probably been the busiest in the last 16 years. The last five months, last 150 days. Just in terms of my involvements, my discussions. You know the opportunities I'm seeing, and it's all tech, it's all tech. But that's the bet. My vision of 16 years ago, when I talked about the only discipline that has the ability to alter ways of life, that was my vision 16 years ago. Am I surprised? No. Is my my vision uh, vindicated, validated? Yes. Is it the beginning? Absolutely, yes. Will it continue? Absolutely, yes. The genes out of the bottle? Absolutely, yes. So we have to balance things now. Now, it depends where you are in your journey in life. I'm not the 30-year-old that I was. So maybe I'm not as nimble, as fast as I should be. But at the same time, we all have to understand the impact of this. And for those who uh, um, are less fortunate than us than ourselves, we have to help them as well. We can't leave them behind. Nobody should be left behind. And technology can do that in a, in a proper way. The governments have to think about that. You cannot leave people behind in this. You can't expand. You, you know, If you take any elastic bandiness and pull it long enough, it will snap at some point. And when it snaps, the repercussions will affect everybody, social repercussions. And this is something that's very, very important. Whilst technology is an enabler, it improves things, you cannot leave anyone behind. And this is an important message. You know. It's great. It's exciting. It's this. It's that. It does a lot of wonderful things. Yes, um, there's a financial side, but then you have to think of the environmental side, and then the social impacts on people. You know, the people whose livelihoods have been destroyed. You know, people who have not uh, uh, been part of this journey, or fortunate enough to be part of this journey. You know, and uh, they have to be taken, taken on board. Find ways to help, and these are important um, things. And whatever I can do in my humble, limited capacity, I will do that. And and first I do is offer my time. And that's the least I can do is offer my time. Somebody wants to meet to talk, yes, I'm available. Yes, because and then share that knowledge, share your learnings. What did I do? How did I do it? How did I get around this? If that can help somebody else, why not? Why not? You know. Um, so nobody can say, oh, uh, they're too busy or they're not. We're all busy, but help people along the way even if everybody was to help one other person multiply the multiply effect you lift more people out of it you know and that's important very very important
0: now that, that is very inspiring and I think it's probably the most important thing right now this capacity because like you mentioned your six your last 16 years have an epil- an epilogue in the sense that you are right now accelerating all this because you put the, the roots and I think the roots and the foundations are really important so as the last question, and I think probably because you are as well, uh, besides being a, a successful business person and investor, you are as well uh, a man of ideas and, and as well a thought leader. So uh, you touch a lot of things from education to uh, the importance of intercultural and interfaith, art, and coexistence of technology. But uh, you touch as well, just in the last uh, answer you made, the importance of uh, the, the different relationships between society. And I think this is for me, one of the areas where I see probably more disruption because definitely if you look at, uh, well, even people like us in technology, we have access to more capacity of, of changing of making money than most of society. And this is creating a huge disruption in terms of perceptions and in terms of the way we see even reality, because it's becoming a bit of, for instance, we see the United States a lot of people are not believing in something that is obvious or in other countries. So how do you see these things, especially this kind of a, the dark side of technology, and as well it's the a, challenges it, it, it's, on it's this? Not
1: the, it's not the dark side of technology. It's the dark side of people who choose not to see some of the most fundamental things in this world. Now, going back to where I grew up, right? I'm not of the African. Uh, uh, um, from an anthropological point of view, but I grew up in Africa, right? I grew up in Africa. I grew, I grew up on African food, African culture, African language, African friends, and I grew up on a lot of Black, African-American music. Some of the lyrics that I learned as a child today guide me and tell me about fundamental flaws in this world. And I'm going to share some very powerful, impactful lyrics with you here. And the, former, the, the late Robert Nestor Mali, Bob Mali, talked about, he said, and I quote, until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes, there'll be a war. All right? Listen, listen to those words. Listen to the words. When you look at uh, a, a person with green eyes, blue eyes, uh, brown eyes, you accept it. So if the eyes don't matter, why should the skin? Number one, number one. Just think, just, just let that sink in for a second. And then, and then the people who do differentiate on that, shame on them, shame on them. I say that openly, unabashedly, shame on them. Because that's not the way I see society. And that's one of the other things I like about technology because it transcends color, creed, religion, race. When I look at technology today, it transcends it. Today, in fact, I was having a conversation earlier on today with an entrepreneur who had come from Israel. And, you know, they were talking about, now they talk about in societies about gender this, you know, diversity that. And I I go on to say, honestly, these are subsets of just one thing. Why don't you just focus on intellect? Let the best brown lesbian be the founder that you're going to back. Or let, let the best blue, you know, whatever. Go for the intellect, the smartest mind. If it comes from a woman, welcome. If it comes from a black guy, welcome. If it comes from a, it doesn't matter, color, creed, religion, race, gender, it doesn't matter. You want the best. Who is providing that? You know, it should not be labelled in terms of this, uh, you know, segmentation. It's in terms of intellect, and that is what I care about. So whether it comes from a guy, a girl, a, a donkey, a sheep, a camel, I don't care. If it's solving the problem, great, welcome, let's do it. And that's how I think. And I could
0: not say, um, I could not agree more. Let's put it that way. I want to thank you, uh, Sleep. It's been a wonderful and inspiring journey. I think I have still a lot of things, but we'll probably do a second one. <laughs> for sure. You've been,
1: you've been too kind. You've been too kind, Dennis. And I really, really thank you for reaching out to me. And I, I would also take one little second of thanking my dear friend, Dee, for connecting us. I just so I want to mention a little thanks to her. If she gets the chance of hearing this, I hope she'll She'll know that I thought of her as well. She's a lovely, lovely soul, and her husband, Mickey, they're dear friends of mine, but they connected us, or she did connect me with you. So I'd like to thank her, a special thanks to her.
0: No, no, we'll be, and she I'll, I've been connecting with her, and I'll I appreciate it as well. No, thank you. And it's about people, that tells us that it's about people, it's about so the way you put it, and intellect as well. I appreciate it. We're going to yeah, promote it. I think it will be a great uh, 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 series for for everyone to listen because your inspiration as well. Um, all the different areas that you touch are really amazing, and uh, and that brings a lot of things. And definitely, I want to follow up in in, in the next one about ideas and very things.
1: And and take this opportunity. I wish you happy holidays and all the best for 2021. Since since the festive season, so enjoy with your family, enjoy your time, and. Uh, May, may God bring a, a better 2021 for all of us and for for mankind.
0: Thank you so much. I couldn't take any more. Cheers. Right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.